0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's May 12th in San Francisco, uh, May 12th, 2021. I have a little bit of a confession today, slightly embarrassed, as I usually am. Um, Uh, Every so often over the last few years, I've been getting this email um, cordially inviting me to participate in something called the Influencers Dinner. Apparently, it's an exclusive dining experience which brings together 12 highly influential people from different industries for an evening of great food, intriguing conversation and tasty cocktails. Uh, and apparently the guests range from TV movie stars, Olympians, scientists and business executives to famed photographers, entrepreneurs, Nobel laureates and royalty. Well, the obvious question is, why the hell was I invited? Uh, <laughs> but somebody put me on the list and it always kind of intrigued me. But for one reason or other, uh, I never could make it. This influencers dinner has had a lot of um, visibility, got a very nice Right up in the New York Times a few years ago suggesting that um, uh, it's a celebration not only of mingling and cooking together, but a celebration of oneself. The guy at the heart of, uh, of the uh, influencers dinner is a young man, perhaps not quite as young as he was when he started it, called John Levy. He has a new book out uh, about the influencers dinner and the, mo- the 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 lessons, the principles he's learned from putting it on called "You're Invited." And for the first time, I actually get to meet the famous Mr. Levy. Uh, so, Sean, yeah. I have to apologize for not showing up, not 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 showing up because I always declined politely. But uh, making, why don't you make me feel even worse? Um, what did I miss from not going to the influencers dinner? We, we had a,
1: a famous journalist once say, I was expecting phenomenal food and decent company. I got the exact opposite. So what I can tell you is you didn't miss out on good food because when you have 12 people who don't know how to cook, make a meal together, it's awful. Uh, but the people who are there are really extraordinary. Uh, it's Nobel laureates, Olympians, editors in chief, uh famous business leaders celebrities all that kind of stuff i've hosted about i 227 dinners in 10 cities in three countries and probably the biggest thing that you missed out on is making some great friends frankly uh we designed the dinners uh built on a characteristic called the ikea effect and that's that we care more about our ikea furniture because we had to assemble it so by having the guests cook the meal together they actually care more about each other and so, oh, it's a,
0: yeah, and, and the book talks about the IKEA effect. I have to say that um, there's no more miserable experience than going to an IKEA store. If you want oh, to awful. ruin a relationship or undermine your relations with your your spouse or your children, so so what's the IKEA effect when it comes to the influencers dinner? Why why should we want to go to an influencers dinner but not want to go to an IKEA store?
1: So the effort is the important part, but it's up to a limit. Right, So when I pair people off to cook together, the activity functions is a great way for them to bond. And because they're putting effort into the cooking process and into each other, they emerge greater friends. Now in Ikea, it's so big and there's so much going on and it, it's essentially saying, hey, I come with me, I wanna get into an argument with you.
0: Right, but- so, so you're, you're distinguishing between the experience of going to an Ikea store, which is incredibly miserable, and uh-huh. actually building a piece of Ikea furniture together, which I've never actually done it. But you're saying that's that that's a a, a bonding or a binding experience to excuse. Yes, me. that's exactly right. So the point of the dinners, uh, the influencers mm-hmm. dinner that you you write about and you're invited is you can't just show up and eat and then go. It's not like going to a restaurant. You have to participate. Is that fair? Yeah,
1: I, I often say that I've spent my life getting people to come to my home, cook me dinner, wash my dishes, and clean my floors. Oddly, yeah. They thank me for it.
0: <laughs> and all for free, right?
1: Oh, yeah. N- nobody gets charged anything. I pay for all of it. And uh, because the objective of it fundamentally is to bond people.
0: You present, John, uh, individuals as intrinsically social. And the book is really a defense of, of our sociability. Uh, one of the things I liked in the book was some reference to uh, a region of Sardinia where people tend to live to over 100. You quote a book by um, an anthropologist called Susan Pinker, The Village yeah. Effect. Uh, are your dinner parties and is your act of connecting an effort to make us all into Sardinians?
1: <laughs> if only. Uh, the You know, it's interesting. What Pinker points out in that book is that the greatest predictor of human longevity isn't like eating a lot of kale and meditating every day. I'm sure those things are good for you. But the number two greatest predictor is close social ties. And number one is social integration, meaning we're part of a community. And so my objective fundamentally isn't just to know a lot of people. It's for them to know each other. And through that, a community forms, and people experience that belonging that fundamentally improves their life. So yes, I would love it if it was like Sardinia. (laughs)
0: Uh, we've had a lot of shows about community of one kind or another. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's been in vogue. It's perhaps the, the core s- secular religion in America. One show we had recently with a um, uh, a Silicon Valley uh, executive called Ximena Vingachoa, I'm doing a great injustice to her name, um, is Listen Like You Mean It, Reclaiming the Lost Art of True Connection. Uh, What do your dinner parties do in terms of stimulating, not talking, but listening? In other words, how do you make your parties and your experience of bringing people together the antithesis of social media?
1: Oh, interesting. So, yeah, social media is really about content creation. Right. And I have a lot of respect for people who can like you produce a phenomenal show and it's a it's a skill set. It's very impressive. But it's. It tends to be social media very one directional. And for community to form, you need to have an exchange. People need to feel like they can both contribute and be contributed to. So the first thing we do is there's no talking about what you do or even giving your last name. And as a byproduct, people are a lot less likely to be vehemently adamant about anything, because you don't know if you're suddenly in a conversation with the world expert on the topic.
0: But you know, I mean, you know that if you go to one of these, you know, amazing 12 only dinner parties that everyone there is going to have done something. You're not just picking people up off the street.
1: Sure. But in terms of where you are in a conversation, you'll be a lot more hesitant to make a claim if I don't know if let's say the two of us are talking. I don't know what you do. I'm not going to say, oh, 100% such and such is true, because you could have been the person who won the Nobel Prize in that topic. I don't know. And that uncertainty causes people to be more open minded.
0: We had the um the sociologist uh, and journalist the USA journalist to the USA today journalist Nathan Bomey on the show earlier this week. John, mm. he has a new book out Bridge Builders Bringing People Together in a Polarized Age, an age of course particularly in America of Republicans and Democrats. I'm guessing though that the events, the the dinners you put on are, at least in political ideological terms, somewhat uh, echo chambers. Are you bringing people together from the heartland? Are you bringing Republicans and Democrats together? Or is politics really uh, not the thing that drives your dinners?
1: Uh, So politics doesn't drive it, but what we aim for is diversity uh, in terms of thinking. And uh, I think it probably leans one direction more than the other. But we did a survey at the beginning of the pandemic, and we were surprised that I think it was like a third or slightly more, maybe it was 40%, identified as Republican, and about 60, 66% identified as Democrat. Now, that's phenomenally interesting. One of my favorite anecdotes was we ran a dinner, uh, at, and at the end of it, once everybody found out who everybody was, a woman turned to the man sitting next to her and said, I couldn't like you more, but couldn't disagree with your politics more. And he was the uh, person who ran the Libertarian, the the media. Yeah. Outlet. And so although we probably lean one way more than another simply because of the geographies that we host in, uh, there is an extreme diversity of viewpoints. Uh, everybody's humanistic, I believe, but politically and financially and all that, you'll find people in completely different spectrums.
0: Well, I'm not sure everyone's humanistic. If you'd invited me, you would have had an anti-humanist. Uh, fortunately, maybe for everybody, I didn't show up. Um, let's <laughs> talk a little bit about the E word, um, uh, John. We, we had my friend Sherry Turkle on the show recently, one of one of America's leading thinkers about technology. She has a new autobiography mm-hmm. out, the Empathy Diary. She was on the show recently. Um, are your get-togethers, is your, your invited uh, endeavor, is it an attempt to not so much build bridges but create empathy?
1: Uh, so I think it's more about uh, creating familiarity. right? So it's hard to understand something, relate to it, or respect another viewpoint unless you've been exposed to it in a safe way. Right, where you don't have to be defensive or anything like that. And by bringing people together that from disparate backgrounds, I think it gives something called the mere exposure effect. It gives a
0: point of reference that that creates familiarity. So rather than the E word, we should bring up the T word, which comes up a lot in your book, trust. You're in the trust business in a sense, John, aren't you both as a thinker and as a businessman?
1: Oh, I would absolutely agree. My basic premise of the book is that our ability to create an impact is a byproduct of who we're connected to, how much they trust us, and the sense of belonging that we share. Trust is an, an essential component to the process.
0: And uh, you know, as we speak, uh, there's a huge, probably civil war within the Republican Party. Liz Cheney has been thrown out. There's no lack yeah. of trust there between Cheney and the Trump people in the Middle East. There's a we seem to be on the verge of another tragic civil war between Israeli and Palestinians. Here we have some images of it. Is yeah. is the great scarcity in the world today from um, the American Republican Party to Israel and the Palestinians, is it a scarcity of trust, John?
1: Uh, so I think that if you look historically, we're actually in a state where we generally trust more, right? There's less war there's less strife it's just we're now more aware of where we need to really work on it so we're hyper aware of the places that trust doesn't exist if you go back several hundred years we had no trust in our food supply system we had no trust in uh, our economic system things were very very fragile now i'm not particularly worried if i go to the bank if my money will be there or not so we have high levels of institutional trust uh, in general and now we're very acutely aware of when somebody breaches it as opposed to it being the standard.
0: Are influencers, by definition, trustworthy? I'm always a bit dubious. No, about not at all.
1: They
0: said, well, <laughs> what do you do? Oh, I'm an influencer. I would immediately distrust them. So isn't there a kind of contradiction between, uh, you know, the subtitle of your book is The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. Isn't there some... Contradiction between influencers and being trustworthy?
1: So here's what's interesting. We've associated
0: the word influencer as somebody who has a
1: large audience on social media. Fundamentally, that's a content creator, right? I'm I'm assuming most internet influencers would agree they're content creators with an audience. That's very, very different than having an influence over an industry through your thought leadership. Position or previous success. So, if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, you possess industry influence—the ability to impact it. Now, just because you hold that position, does it mean you are deserving of trust? Absolutely not. In general, trust is made up of competence, your ability to do something; honesty, that you're being truthful; and the third is benevolence, that you have our best interests at
0: heart. John one of the reasons why social media, um, is, is, is by definition untrustworthy is because it's so open, uh, in contrast with what you're doing, which, you know, when you send me your, your invitations, it's, um, it's exclusive, it's invitation only. It's not open to everyone. Uh, the new phenomenon in the Valley as you know, is clubhouse, uh, Mm-hmm. And I'm uh, and I'm uh, underlining the invite-only chat app, which uh, now is worth, I think, four billion dollars. Um, mm-hmm. Is the success of Clubhouse or the seeming success of Clubhouse bound up in its invitation-only nature? Is that what makes people trust it more than Facebook or Twitter?
1: Uh, I think that trust is a characteristic, but it's. I'd actually argue more on. It idea of curation. So the fact is that people are willing to go far out of their way and spend a fortune to be in the right rooms. Like what does Davos cost? Like $50,000 to $250,000 so that hopefully you could bump into Bill Gates, right? Or Ted costs $10,000. I think what the app offered, especially in its early days, is a highly curated, selected group of initial users that when you bump into them or you're in the same room as them, you feel like you have a seat at the table. And that's the big draw there.
0: Uh, Clubhouse seems to have hit a wall recently as a piece in The Verge. Can <laughs> Clubhouse keep the party going? What advice would you give, given that you're an invite-only physical event? Is invitation-only online, by definition, a kind of contradiction? That, that Does your mm-hmm. business and your endeavor over the last almost 10 years Does it depend on on the physical meeting? I know in COVID you've been doing virtual dinner parties too, but I'm guessing you're very eager to go back to the physical event.
1: Oh, I'm very eager to go back. Uh, So my advice to Clubhouse is to ask what kind of platform they want to be. So if they want to be the type of platform where high profile people really want to engage and produce content and lead rooms, then it needs to be more curated. If what they want is something that's open to the public as a total and for people to have smaller rooms then it it's more distributed and give more access to the people at large but i'll tell you as a as that happens as more and more people come on and the rooms become smaller and smaller it's less appealing for high profile people to come in because they're just not going to draw a large enough audience to make it worth their time
0: john i'm curious as to how you. what? How your reading of the impact of COVID uh, on our culture broadly, in terms of, shall we say, networking and influences? Here we have a, a WHO warning about the devastation of COVID. It's probably not going to influence the the influencers as much. Um, we had recently uh, uh, Nicholas Christakis on the show as the author. I love
1: his research. Yeah, and,
0: and you refer to him, of course, in your book. He. He was on my show, though, talking about Apollo's arrow, uh, the profound and enduring impact of the coronavirus on the way we live. Mm -hmm. What's your sense of the impact of of COVID on life in general over the next few years?
1: Uh, So I think that one of the biggest problems we'll face is that people who have lots of friends tend to make more friends, right? It feeds itself. People who are isolated and lonely, as they became more isolated during COVID might feel like they're deserving of less social contact. And so I think when we come out of this, we'll see a large group of people who come together, who are really social. And then a lot of people that feel completely isolated that won't come back into the standard way of social interaction. And they're going to feel lonelier than ever and more isolated because others are gathering and they're not.
0: Yeah, it's it's part of the, the the broader I think trend of the disappearance of the middle, uh, mm-hmm. in economic yeah. terms, in cultural terms, and as you suggest, in existential terms. Uh, John, I don't want to misrepresent the book. You're invited: the art and science of cultivating influence is not just about your dinner party, although that's obviously oh, a trigger. There, but yeah. yeah, it's but it but it's the, the thing sort of behind it. What I liked about the book was it told some really good stories. Uh, you, you mm. very, very disparate individuals who you fit into this narrative of sociability and invitation. Uh, you begin uh, with someone I never would have expected to find in this kind of book, a woman called Jean Nidich, the founder of Weight Watchers. Uh, here we have yeah. a photo of her. eating Amazing. A big ice cream and, 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 and as thin as ever, but you note that she wasn't always quite this thin. What is it about Jean Nidich that, um allows her to be so central at the beginning of your book.
1: So here's what's crazy. Jean Knighted was a was, I think, you know, a highly overweight woman by her standards. So and,
0: overweight, as you note in the book, that when people bumped into her in the in the supermarket, they thought she was pregnant.
1: Oh yeah. She literally somebody said, Congratulations. And she's like, what is she talking about? Uh, yeah. And in, in and she said, okay, I'm going to lose weight but realized that fundamentally she's not going to be able to do it on her own. And so what she did was she started gathering groups of women to come and meet twice a week to talk about their challenges and support each other with their health. And in an era where a woman couldn't even have a credit card that said her own name on it, her credit card had to say Miss Marty Knightage, Jean started Weight Watchers International and became a multimillionaire, helping millions of people around the world lose weight and uh, and approach their health goals but it was all because of a community design she brought people together and created a safe space for them and that was what's amazing about her
0: so she was a she was a bridge builder she was in the business essentially of 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 people who wanted to lose weight learning how to listen to one another Um, and it's very hard as you suggest to lose weight on your own um your book is full of, of 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 politically very consequential individuals. Um, I didn't expect Frederick Douglass to pop up in your book. He's often in in, in books. We've talked about him a lot in the past. What is it about Frederick Douglass that inspired you to to, to tell his story in your book?
1: So what I was amazed by was that Frederick, uh, after escaping from slavery, which was a harrowing tale, ended up getting heavily involved in the abolitionist movement. And the abolitionists... And uh, oddly, used the same playbook hundreds of years before Gene Nightage did in terms of organization and then uh, spreading the word and creating communities of support. And because of Douglas openly sharing his story and because of uh, the other people involved in the anti abolitionist movement, uh, they were able to create enough support to have Lincoln be elected president. And then we're able to put enough pressure to create the Emancipation Proclamation. And so the the strength of uh, both of these people, although completely different, there's no way to compare Douglass's goal and Gene Nydic's goal. Yeah, I don't know if we have
0: any photos of uh, Frederick Douglass eating ice creams.
1: Yes, but Frederick Douglass was, this is incredible, was able to, because of the status he developed as a, a communicator, and using a community-based approach, was able to one day just show up to the White House randomly and was and was able to sit with the president within 15 minutes. This is an incredible achievement of how social ties and connection can drive our influence.
0: Uh, I think my favorite story in the book, uh, this is not a, a man I'd heard of before, or actually his organization, but it was fascinating. Um... Yeah. The, the con body founder, Kos Marte, who was a former drug dealer. You, you tell his yeah. story, I think, in a really interesting way. Tell me the story of him. The the short version
1: of the story is that at a young age, he started to hustle and started to make some real money selling drugs and then got busted. and, was and he was over,
0: Wasn't was he overweight as well, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. He, he got
1: for? busted, goes to prison, and on his first medical checkup, they say, you see that 70-year-old man there? And I think Kos was like 24 at the time. He's like, yeah. He's like, that seventy-year-old man's going to outlive you because you are in such poor health. You have gained so much weight that you're heart- going to have a heart attack. You're either going to lose weight or you're going to be dead in three years before you're even freed. And so, uh, Koss started just running and exercising by himself, and then it, it inspired so many of the people in his in the prison that they started a workout group, and the group lost combined a thousand pounds. And when Koss got out of prison, he didn't have any job opportunities, so he ended up creating a fitness program based on workouts that he could do in his cell.
0: And which is that became called, uh, which, which, which Con is Body. Con Body, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. The guy's a huge inspiration. I work out with him like twice a week, and uh, it is a serious workout. I mean, I can see how he shed the weight in, in prison.
0: What does it tell you, though, about this shift from someone who was an outsider, certainly that the dealing of drugs wasn't good for him or for society, Mm -hmm. Uh, and his new role. You seem to suggest that sociability makes us better morally. Is that fair?
1: I'd say that our behavior is contagious, and that when we have strong social ties that have healthy habits, those spread. And in fact, your previous guest that you mentioned, Nicholas Christakis, did a phenomenal study on this. He found that If I have a friend who's obese, my chances increase by 45%. My friends who don't know them have a 20% increased chance, and their friends have a 5%. And this is also true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits. All these things travel through our networks. And so what Kass was able to do was to curate a community of former prison uh, convicts who were fully dedicated to staying out of prison and having a positive impact on society. And as a byproduct, they had a 0% recidivism rate. None of them went back to prison. And that's unheard of.
0: It is unheard of. Uh, John Leavis, you're invited. The Art and Science of Cultivating Influences is is full of excellent stories and, and inspiring stories about how we can actually work together. John, perhaps we might end with some suggestions about how to fix both the Arab-Israeli conflict and this civil, this growing imminent civil war within the Republican Party. What what would be your suggestion, especially in the Middle East? No one seems to have succeeded. We need a John Levy to fix this problem. It's been going on 100 years now, John.
1: So uh, I don't know if anybody will trust me there because I was actually born in Israel. So I'm I'm probably not the, the best person for that. But. Uh, There's this kind of famously socialized conversation in the U.S. that the rift between the Democrats and Republican parties, for example, grew when representatives stopped living in D.C. And the reason is that when you're in your constituency, then you don't have any exposure to the people on the other side of the aisle. And as a byproduct when you were in DC, your kids went to school together. You'd spend weekends at birthday parties together. There was the time that you were socializing together. And then sure, when you were in session, you you did your thing. But it wasn't the vehement hatred or anger or, uh, or name calling that we're seeing today. And so I think that if you want to be a, a representative for your state, then the obligation is to, to probably spend more time with all the people that and and live there in DC so that way you can actually develop deeper social ties and find a common ground because if we're we're not willing to put in that effort then we won't find a common ground we're just an echo chamber of our own side
0: well the echo chamber of our own side might be uh the ted organization you you made a popular speech there what makes us influential uh What Ted has done over the last few years, as you note in the book, under the ownership of Chris Anderson, is, is scale, is, is, is sort of present their brand, allow other people to use their brand to develop the conversation. Is that mm-hmm. what you're trying to do with your organization? Is your invited a, a, a scalable model in business and cultural terms?
1: So I, I'm not trying to have my community be scaled at all. Uh, like I'm not going to do an influencers X or something like that. Ted has TEDx. But what I do really want is for people to realize that the way we connect isn't through networking. The way we win people over isn't through gifts. Fundamentally, what makes us human is the ability to invest effort into one another and care. And I want people to have better, more meaningful relationships, whether that's in business or for social causes or just from everyday life. And this is kind of the playbook for all that.
0: Well, John Levy, the author of You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence, is a book about um, investing in relationships. This is a strange time. John, where are you at the moment? Are you in New York?
1: Yes, I'm. it looks like I'm in a curtain room or something like that. But yeah, yeah, I'm on the Upper West Side of
0: New York. Well, you're on the Upper West Side of New York. I'm in San Francisco. We're still stuck inside in these weird COVID times. In addition to your new book, John, what else should people be reading to cultivate? Better relationships.
1: Oh wow, that's a great question. There's a phenomenal uh, book called Dream Teams by Shane Snow, brilliant, brilliant author. Um, and I think that there's a and uh, there's John hate especially when we're looking at the relationships for children. There's a book called Coddling of the American Mind, mm. and he explores that we've gotten so protective of our children that they don't develop the skills necessary to be social, to be able to view other people's ideas. And maybe what we need to do is let them fail a bit and not help them every moment so that they can toughen up and get stronger. uh,
0: Yeah, I need to get John Haidt actually on the show. John Levy, another John. Thank you so much. As I said, really interesting book. You're invited. Uh, I'm going to be invited. I hope again, I hope I haven't been taken on the list. Uh, off the list. Uh, I promise you, next time I'm invited, I will really try and show up. Real pleasure and honor to have you on the show, John. Keep well, keep healthy, and keep connecting. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you.